The following is a presentation of Muddy River News. There's a reason Harvey's Furniture has been around for over 75 years. Exceptional quality furniture, affordable prices, superior customer service. The only way to stay in business for over 75 years is to do things right. Harvey's Furniture, our home, your home. A 25-minute movie uh, was recently posted on the Vice Network's YouTube page, uh, and it, it reviews the flood of 1993 along the Mississippi River, and it also brings in the question of whether James Scott is innocent of the crime he was convicted of. Uh, joining me today is Adam Pitlock, uh, the narrator of the movie, and first of all, thank you for uh, taking the time to join me today. Very welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh Adam also is the author of, of a book that he wrote back in 2007 uh, called Damned to Eternity that also takes a look back at that time. And I guess my first question for you is, you, you touched on it a little bit in the movie, but how and why did you reach out to Jimmy Scott uh, when you first got involved with him to, to, to do the research for your book? In, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1998, I was a junior at the University of Missouri and my editor at the Columbia Missourian, Sharon Harrell, was uh, the managing editor at the time and the chief news director. Um, I should qualify the Columbia Missourian, although written and produced by student journalists, is actually the paper for the city of Columbia, Missouri. So it's not a student newspaper. It's a, it's a learning laboratory. The second trial of James Scott had just concluded. He was given a second life sentence, this time under a different motive, which helped uh, convict him. Her instructions were go down to Jeff City, go to the walls, do an interview with James Scott and tell me what you see. Tell me what you hear. Tell me what you think, because based on the court TV coverage of the flood, it seemed, again, that circumstantial evidence with a life sentence attached to it seemed harsh. So that was the intro into my relation with james scott into my involvement in this case and um it was one of those one of those career defining interviews that i did it as a college student and here we are in 2022 and i'm still talking about it so how did you and the vice network get together in regards to the creation of this film uh, as you pointed out in the beginning the book came out in 2007 and ever since the book came out it seems whenever there's a big natural disaster happening, usually they're in the summer months, starting with, uh, well, I mean, all the, the the wave of hurricanes and then other storms and floods. I seem to get a call from media pretty regularly in the summer times when natural disasters are occurring because they'll Google, they'll see the book, they'll see that there's one man in prison for causing a section of the great Midwestern floods. That happened this time. Vice reached out to me in the um, late spring of 2021, said they came across the book and that they were interested in filming a segment on it and would I be interested in participating. So that's how the relationship uh, started with Vice. But the one thing that you uh, have told me was, yes, you were involved with the film, but in regard to the editorial content that was put into the film, that was not you. Can you sort of explain sure. what your role was in the filmmaking process? Yes, I'm not affiliated with Vice. I'm uh, independent. And uh, Vice filmed over the course of three days. I flew into, started in Columbia. We drove to Jeff City. 
Um, then we we filmed in Jeff City for a couple of days. Then we drove to Quincy and filmed there. And then I flew back. That was in July of 2021. And I had no other input say nothing into the they're they're an independent autonomous journalistic outfit organization so mm -hmm. they didn't ask my opinion they didn't ask my input they had the role they knew the story and they frankly put in quite a bit of work it was pretty exhaustive on their part to be working on it as long as they did for a 25 minute video which i can appreciate because writing the book it, it also took years so but the first um, time you saw the film was the first time. the first time everybody saw. else saw the film. That's right. What'd you think of it? I think they did a good job. I, I'm impressed with the um, with the amount of of research they did. I'm surprised they got Norman Hare to go on camera. Um, I'm surprised they got former mayor to go on camera. Um, again, I, I didn't even know who they were contacting. So uh, every it, it was almost like a, a, a big reveal for me as well to see who they were able to contact and what they had to say about it. Um, I do think it's interesting. I read, I, I started reading some of the comments and then when they got to over 3000, I, I said, you know, this is, this is getting pretty uh, repetitive. So, um, but I got the gist of what they're saying. Um, I, I do like the fact that there is now a voice for James Scott. Um, I know it's not a big fan favorite in Quincy to hear that, but I mean, you're a formal her former Harold Wig person. All the stories coming out of the Harold Wig for decades have only been the other side. So it's refreshing, I think, to actually get both sides. Um, you've had multiple opportunities to interview James Scott. Tell the viewers, what kind of person do you meet now every time you get a chance to talk to him? Well, quite a few years had elapsed since the last time I spoke with him. Uh, as pointed out in the documentary, I think it was about probably 13, 14 years since we had last seen each other. I no longer live in Missouri, so it's it's harder and harder to um, to visit. Uh, I see you're still wearing your Mizzou t-shirt, though. I I'm wearing my Mizzou t-shirt. Anytime I speak to Illinois media, especially coming up on this basketball game, I'm going to be sure to wear my Mizzou t-shirt. <laughs> um, I... Uh, I did not go into this story trying to presume innocence or prove innocence of James Scott. That started in 98. I tried to cover it objectively. I've written other stories about him. I wrote a story in the Riverfront Times and the Illinois Times and Springfield on the Huffington Post. Uh, I, I've written different pieces over time about James Scott that put me face to face with James Scott, and none of them were couched in this presumption of innocence or trying to free James Scott. That happened way later, way after after the book was published. I, even in the book, if you read the acknowledgement section, I say I try to do it straight up. No presumption of innocence, no trying to prove innocence, but basically trying to put the story forward because, and I still believe, there's too many holes to be given a life sentence for this particular crime. And, and, and I believe that then, I believe that now. But I've become more of an advocate for James Scott over the years because... As these natural disasters happen with more frequency, as I'm watching the revolving doors of justice put more violent offenders in and have them released while James Scott is still sitting in prison, it makes me question the criminal justice system. But more than that, it makes me question 
the tenor of the times in that particular section of America where they this seemed okay. And based on what you said earlier about the comments you're receiving on a story you did before and the the overall uh, animosity or vitriol or ire that Quincy still has for James Scott, I, I if they have that much ire 30 years later, how can he ever have had a fair trial when there were still floods happening during the trial in Hannibal? Yeah, and and we've received, uh, you know, we wrote about your film, uh, I think about two weeks ago, and we've had people reach out to us and question why we would even put it on our website, uh, that, you know, this was such a, a, a horrible event and a horrible person, but if people were to go to the, the the comments on YouTube, the comments are almost the exact opposite, aren't they? From what I mean, I haven't been monitoring it too closely, but in the beginning when it first aired, that's that's what they were saying. Um, you mentioned that you've kind of become an advocate for Jim Scott, um, but you also mentioned in the film that there was one other person who was an advocate for Jim Scott, and that was his mother. And I can't imagine that anybody who watched the film, whether they were for or against uh, his prosecution, didn't have some sort of sympathy for his mother. Was that interview uh, in, in the film the last time the two of you spoke? I called her one other time. Actually, there's probably two or three other times since then. Um, I When I would, when I, filming this, put me back in touch with with James. So we started uh, emailing, which is, it had been that long since I corresponded with him. And in the past, it used to be all letters. The prison did away with letters. It's now all emails. Right. Um. So I set up an account where we could email. And um, two or three times since the filming, he asked me to check in on his mother, uh, which I did, called her up to see how she was doing. Frankly, I... I didn't detect any difference. I mean, she, she always was very simple, easy to talk to low cadence, um, slow cadence. So I, I was shocked actually to hear, um, what happened because she also didn't indicate that she was in any sort of failing or degenerative, uh, degenerative health condition. Um, one part of the film that I found was particularly interesting was when you you tried to find Joe Flax. Uh, mm-hmm. And for the people who are watching this interview, um, and I hope I'm, I'm saying this correctly, but uh, he was 16 years old at the time in the second trial, uh, testified about Scott wanting to sabotage the levy to strand his wife over in Missouri. And you spent some time trying to find Mr. Flax. Um, obviously in the movie, you didn't have any luck. Has anything happened since the production of the movie in which someone contacted you and said, hey, I think I might know where this guy is? Actually, that did happen. Um, I received an a email from a lawyer um, in that area who said that uh, there, I don't... I'm hesitant to bring it up because I didn't re- independently verify it, but mm-hmm. I'll say that he that um, this lawyer said that Joe's no longer in Quincy and that he's in another Midwestern state right now, which, uh, like I said, this this was a recent development, so I haven't vetted it myself. I don't want to go into too many details until oh, I actually verify Completely understand that. And I thought your interview uh, with the... Uh, uh, the gentleman with the University of Missouri uh, was 
very interesting. Um, I mean, is, is there? A... That's the most. If, if Go ahead. that's very important, I think to the extent that there's any critique on the documentary, David Hammer, Professor Hammer, needed to be in there more for for two reasons. Number one, he's one of the definitive scholars in and soil and atmospheric sciences and and uh hydrodynamics in in the nation um he's a uh annapolis grad a combat marine in vietnam uh degrees from illinois uh, from illinois and tennessee i mean his credential he he is beyond reproach mm -hmm. he doesn't know james scott he never met james scott he didn't know about the case he knew about the flood, but he didn't realize there was a case. There was another professor also who's since passed away, but who was in the book. His name was Dr. Charles Morris, and he was out of uh, University of Missouri, Rolla, another fantastic engineering school. Neither one of these guys, Hammer or Morris, knew each other other than by reputation because they were both in the field. Neither, neither one of them um, consulted with each other. They didn't have a, a sidebar. They didn't discuss this case. They didn't discuss... But they were both given topographic maps showing a hundred square mile radius of the geographic area. Mm -hmm. They were both asked point to where, based on your knowledge of levees and river systems, where if this levee were to break, where would it break? Both of them recognize that there are six parameters that could deem a levee failable. If a levee meets any one of six different conditions, it could fail. This one met all six, and they both picked the exact same spot where it broke without knowing where it broke. So again, if you follow the science, it's one thing to follow the money. I think that that's the sexy part of the story. That's probably why Advice News came calling. But follow the science. The science points to the fact that this levy was in a process of eminent failure. The second they bulldozed the backside, it was over. Second they cut channels into it and bulldozed it, it was over. It was weak. It was soggy, it was saturated, and the free board was still only two inches. Um. You're one of the few people who have really researched uh, this this case, Mr. Scott's life. Um, so I have basically two final questions for you. Uh, first, uh, Mr. Scott's been in the Correctional Center in Jefferson City now for nearly three decades. Too long? Yeah, I, I, here's the other thing, too. Yes, it's too long um, for this particular crime admitting as I am, society might be better off with James Scott in prison, but that's not the justice system. That's not how it's supposed to work. And you can't do this mosaic of how a person is going to develop based on past transgressions. This isn't pre-crime. Uh, pre it's not a Tom Cruise movie. You can't do that. That's not the justice system. The justice system is beyond a reasonable doubt. And in my opinion, and in the opinion of the scientists, and in the popular opinion of those people that aren't in Quincy, that didn't happen here. And so I guess you, so you're, um, you're sort of leading me to my final question is, you know, do you think he's guilty? Now, you mentioned that he doesn't deserve to be in prison for nearly three decades, mm -hmm. but do you think he was guilty of causing a catastrophe? 100% not. Not guilty. And here's why. Follow the signs. That let me let me pose this question to you. I mean, it should be kind of intuitive. If a levee's strong enough to have bulldozers running up and down the backside of it, to have thousands of volunteers walking along it, to have National Guardsmen, to have uh, lay people, to have vehicles going up and down this levee, one person is able to sabotage it in the matter of 
of minutes with zero physical evidence. And then he comes out squeaky clean with not a, a, a speck of dirt on him. The other reason I think he's innocent is because the story's changed twice. He had two different trials. It's important to remind your viewers and readers. Mm -hmm. The reason there was a second trial is because of prosecutorial misconduct during the first trial. They were trying to throw the kitchen sink at him. They were going after him guns blazing and they just didn't follow judicial jurisprudence procedure. Right. They didn't care. They, they were fast and loose with the rules. So we got a second trial. That's why there was a second trial. It had nothing to do. It had everything to do with the prosecution screwing up. The story changed between the two trials. These things, if he were that dead to center guilty of doing this, the story shouldn't have changed and the science should support it. And there should be a shovel or a stick of dynamite or there should be some way to prove it. And there's not. There's certainly. There do you think there's anything that, you, you know, you've mentioned it. His mother's past. You're really about the only advocate that he has. Um, you mentioned pardons and, and and other options, but is there anything that Adam Pitlock can do to help? Get, get no, there's not. I mean, I, I feel I've reached this point. I've I've exhausted what I can do. I wrote the book. I've written stories. I'm speaking to you now, and you know, and probably not the most welcoming venue I could appear on. Um, and I did the Vice documentary, and I mean, I've, I've literally exhausted what I can pr uh, can do. At the request of some people, when I was reading the comments on Vice about a week ago, I started a GoFundMe account. Um, it, whether I could, and I started talking to a lawyer in St. Louis who may or may not take it on. I mean, we're we're it's a new revelation. I mean, th this was a sleepy case. This was even for my own. Um, even in my own endeavors right now, I mean, it's not something I've been doing on a day to day for years. So to be back into it, um, you know, the the documentary kind of took on a life of its own. It has over, I think, 700,000 views already and counting. Um, I'm hoping that it has enough traction and there's enough of a reaction from the viewers and maybe somebody else wants to pick up the torch. Um, but other than trying to raise money for a lawyer and maybe the people that are contributing to the GoFundMe um, I'm, that are requesting that it gets put straight into Jim's commissary, I'll do that. I mean, I, I have no financial stake in this. I really don't know what else I can do. If somebody else calls me, if another type of vice or a 2020 or a dateline, I mean, I'll pick up the phone just like I did with you. But I, I really don't. I'm not I'm not out stumping for this. I'm hoping that organically something can happen. But I'm also familiar enough with this case where it's going to, the way I see it, it's only a gubernatorial pardon or if the Supreme Court wants to revisit the legality of the of the uh, the crime. Other than that, I don't see anything. Adam Pitluck, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Appreciate right, it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Muddy River News, our home, our news.